TED Audio Collective. Hi, TED Talks Daily listeners. You're about to hear something a little different from us. This week, we're sharing a series called TED Connects Community and Hope. Some very timely conversations with TED speakers around the coronavirus pandemic. And we want to hear from you. Let us know what you think by leaving a review or emailing us at podcasts at TED.com. This one features psychologist, researcher, and author Susan David in conversation with the head of TED, Chris Anderson, and current affairs curator, Whitney Pennington Rogers. Support comes from Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial, when the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. The best place to see stars is at home with Prime Video. Get everything included with Prime, like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, starring Donald Glover and Maya Erskine. Rent or buy hits like Mean Girls, starring Renee Rapp. Or add-on channels like Max for the HBO original Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David. You've never seen so many stars in one place. Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. Prime membership not required to rent or buy. Prime membership required for add-on subscriptions. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. Support for TED Talks Daily is from Progressive, home of the Name Your Price tool. You can say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. It's easy to start a quote. Visit Progressive.com to get started. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. My name is Chris Anderson. I'm the guy lucky enough to run the TED organization. Uh, it's, it's a treat to be here with you. Thank you so much for taking time to come and be part of this. This is new for TED. This is, you know, we're known for TED Talks. Here we're going to spend an hour in conversation with some of the world's wisest people, um, because this is a moment when we need that wisdom more than ever. So we're facing the pandemic that we were warned about. You know, these are extraordinary times, times we'll remember for the rest of our lives, I suspect. And it's not like, you know, the battle is just the external battle, the battle against the virus, the decisions that our leaders make. There's this other battle as well that is probably equally as consequential. Um, it's a battle that's going on right inside our minds. I mean, you know, if you're anything like me, you've had this real roller coaster of emotions the last few days, weeks. Um, this is scary. This is different. This is alarming. You know, we don't know what to, what to make of it, a lot of us. And the decisions we make collectively, I think, are going to be hugely consequential. On one scenario, there's a chance that we can use this moment to build community, to build bonds with each other, to get to know each other in different ways to spend time with people we haven't spent time with to look for the best in each other. And uh, on another scenario, our fear and anger will drive us apart. I'd like to introduce the questioner in chief, my wonderful colleague, the TED's current affairs curator, Whitney Pennington Rogers. 
Thanks so much, Chris. And hello to everyone joining us all around the world. Chris will be back later to take part in this conversation. He will come with some of your questions. And so on to our guest, you know, as Chris mentioned, there's uh, so much happening in the media, so much conversation around the coronavirus. And oftentimes it's focused on the things that our government officials are doing, the decisions that they're making. So what's happening to our lives physically? Uh, what are some of the changes that we're experiencing as far as uh, working remotely, uh, social distancing? Uh, but what often is overlooked is the social and the emotional toll uh, that this is all taking on of all, all of us, which is a really critically important and a very real part of how we're all experiencing this pandemic. Um, and so we're we're really thrilled to be joined today by renowned author and Harvard Medical School psychologist, Susan David. She gave a hugely popular TED Talk about emotional courage and the impact that understanding your emotions can have on your lives, on our lives. And so we're excited to chat with her about how we can approach this uh, as we're experiencing this pandemic in this moment. Thank you for inviting me into the conversation. I'm delighted to be part of it. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Sue. We're, we're uh, again, excited to have you. And I, I guess, first and foremost, how are you doing? How are you holding up? Well, I think like everyone, we're doing the best we can given the circumstances. My husband is a physician at MGH and it's really a stark reality when one week you're saying, you know, can you pick up groceries? And the next week you're exchanging emergency contact information if something were to go wrong. So, you know, we're all living this reality and I think trying to find the inner resources to do that in the best way we can is just of profound importance right now. So thank you. Yeah, no, definitely. I'm, I'm glad to hear um, that you're you're managing and hanging in there. Your work is is so focused around how we can best prepare ourselves emotionally and psychologically for these moments of change and complexity. Um, and you have this really beautiful saying about life's beauty is inseparable from its fragility. What does that mean, and how does that apply to the the current moment we're all experiencing? Well, I think we all know this internally at some level that there is this complex and intimate, beautiful relationship between the beauty of life and the fragility of life. We love and then we lose. We are healthy until we are ill. We in jobs in which we need it until those jobs are no longer. We might, you know, roll our eyes and yell at our kids and ask them to tidy their rooms. And then one day there's silence where that child once was, they're now making their way in the world. And so there's this complex interplay between the beauty and the fragility of life that just is what makes the wholeness of life. And yet so often in our narratives in society, we talk about, you know, focusing on success and being positive all the time and goal setting. And, you know, there's this whole, even even our avoidance that we have really, I think at a very broad level in society, our avoidance of talking about what is the most common feature that all of us or common experience that all of us will go through, which is to die. And yet so much of our society is constructed around preventing avoidance, denial of this reality. And, you know, the circumstance that we're in now is not something that we asked for, but life is calling on every single one of us to move into the place of wisdom in ourselves, beyond the thinking, judgy, county, 
mind into the space of wisdom and, and fortitude and solidarity, community, courage. And it's a calling for all of us right now that I think is just so enmeshed in what is in our absolute undeniable reality, the fragility of life right now. Thank you for that. And I, I mean, and I think that for a lot of us, when we're thinking about how our lives have changed, um, you know, and we are approaching this idea of happiness, so many of the things that at one point uh, really did bring us a lot of joy, being able to go out with friends and socialize and spend physical time with loved ones. Uh, so many of those things have changed. So, you know, I guess in, in this moment, how do you advise that we cultivate happiness and, and joy with all everything that's going on? Well, so just to be clear, firstly, I'm not anti-happiness, um, which you'll understand why I'm saying this as I, as I progress. I think, though, that often, again, we have this narrative in society that is about be happy and be positive. And uh, whilst that may sound like it's the right thing, and it sounds like that is the thing that we should all be saying, you know, just keep positive or you know, when people are experiencing cancer, they're told to just be positive. Or when people are being marginalized or discriminated against to stop being so angry. You know, we have in our society this um, almost judgment that happiness and joy are the most important emotional experiences that we can have. And on the other hand, the so-called bad or negative emotions are frustration, anxiety, grief, loss, fear, sadness. Um, and so what we do is we often become very comfortable with happiness and we become uncomfortable with those difficult emotions and we push them aside. But I think what so often happens when we try to pursue some idea of, well, going out was what made me happy or um, I can't go clubbing this weekend and now I can't be happy, is what we're doing is we're basically establishing the anchor point of happiness around expectations or goals. and. What we know, actually, when we look at the scientific literature is that when we overly strongly focus on happiness as a goal, we actually become less happy over time. And it's this really interesting paradox because it's we almost seeking something as opposed to just living our lives in a way that is compassionate and accepting. What I would say is that rather than trying to find happiness, I think now for all of us is actually a space for us to come into ourselves, to come into our emotions, to not try to brush away the grief or the loneliness or the anxiety, but to rather face into that. Um, one of the stories that I spoke about in my TED Talk, which has really stuck with me my whole life, was when I was about five years old, I became absolutely aware of the fact that I was going to die one day. And this is very normal. Around the age of five or six years old, children become aware of their own mortality. And so I became aware of the fact that I was going to die and that my parents weren't going to be around forever. And I would find my way into my parents' bed at night, you know, squeezing between the two of them. And I would say to my father and my mother, you know, promise me that you won't die. Promise me you won't die. And I was five and I was desperate. And my father was so profoundly beautiful in the way he held me during those nights. He didn't try to build some false narrative. Oh, just be positive. I'm going to be around. Don't worry about me. Everything's fine. 
he didn't try to build some false narrative between me and reality. What he said to me is, Susie, it's normal to be scared. We all die and it's normal to be scared. And what we need to do is we need to not try to do away with fear, but rather to reach inside ourselves and to find the courage. And I think that is a message for our times, which is not to try brush aside or belittle or judge yourself. If you're experiencing difficult emotions, this is a tough time. But rather, if we can use strategies to enable us to be with those emotions in healthy ways, which is the whole foundational uh, experience of what I call emotional agility, this is ultimately what will enable us to bring the best of ourselves forward in every aspect of how we love and how we lead in these times, how we parent and how we come to ourselves. And I think that that's exactly what we'd love to hear more about is this emotional agility that you just referenced. Maybe just first start there. What what is emotional agility? What are the the main tenets of, of this philosophy? Well, the first part of emotional agility, which is really critical, is moving away from, I think, what so many of us have. I did some research where I was asking people, you know, when you have difficult emotional experiences, what do you tend to do with them? And I did surveys of around 70,000 people. And what I found is that a large majority of us may be, uh, you know, driven by this narrative of, oh, I've got to be happy and positive all the time. What we tend to do when we have these difficult emotional experiences is we do, we judge them, we belittle them, we push them aside, or we get stuck in them. So the language that I use is we often bottle our emotions, we rationalize them and we push them aside, or we brood on them and we get stuck in them. And what emotional agility is, and I can talk about this, you know, in terms of its principles, but also its strategies in more detail, but really what emotional agility is, it's the ability to be with ourselves our full selves, our full emotional experience in ways that are compassionate because this is tough and these emotions are real. So we need to be compassionate with ourselves and others. We need to be curious. Um, You know, what is my frustration telling me about what's important to me? What is my guilt telling me when I'm interacting with my children right now? What is that telling me about what's important? There are so many millions of people who are jobless or disenfranchised or in situations of profound difficulty right now. And I've got anger towards that. What does my anger tell me about what I value? So if we can move into a space where instead of pushing aside these signposts that our emotions give us and instead move into a space where we are compassionate with them, where we're curious with them, and where we start saying, how can I, even in the midst of fear, I don't need to do away with my fear. The fear just is. It's my body. It's my mind. It's my emotions doing their job. Our emotions have evolved to help us. And so when we feel fear, that's our emotion trying to help us. So the important thing here is not to do away with it, but also not to get stuck in it. So to develop a sense of What are courageous steps that I can take even in the midst of a reality that I didn't choose and that isn't of my asking, how can I bring myself forward in a way that's courageous and connected? So in brief, emotional agility is the ability to be with ourselves in our fullness with compassion and curiosity so that we can live in ways that are values connected.
That's beautiful. And I think that that for me, that's definitely really meaningful in thinking about how I'm personally experiencing a lot of this. And I imagine for a lot of folks. And and so I'm curious then in thinking about emotional agility pre you know, uh, pandemic and today, what are some of the differences between how you might have practiced that before and, and how you're practicing that now? What are some of the, the ways practicing emotional agility has changed? Well, I think the principles of emotional agility are actually fundamental principles of psychological health and wellness, regardless mm. of the context that we're in, regardless of whether we stressed in our job or, uh, you know, struggling to with our children in a way that's effective over dinner time, you know, those might have been the day-to-day realities that we're experiencing. And I think that all that's really happened is the need for emotional agility becomes so much more profound and so much clearer. We also are deciding whether we let that narrative that is coming through the media own us whether we're going to let our emotions own us or whether we are going to exert some kind of empowerment and connection over these experiences and whether we're going to own it. And, you know, what always just comes to mind, and it's it's probably, um, you know, a very oft-used phrase, but it really, I think, is so profoundly important right now. I think, as I'm speaking of that beautiful Viktor Frankl idea, Viktor Frankl, who survived the Nazi death camps, who describes what I think is the most profoundly powerful human sentiment. And it's this, that between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose. And it's in that choice that lies our growth and freedom. We didn't choose these circumstances. Often what happens is we get hooked. We get into an experience where there's no space between stimulus and response. We either mindlessly, you know, go onto our Twitter feeds and we engage with the news and we catastrophize or we feeling so stressed out or we avoiding. Or, and so I think this is really a time of creating space between stimulus and response. We do that by being open to what we're experiencing, by saying, what do I need to do here, by being intentional in the particular strategies. So I think in short answer to your question, you know, emotional agility are basically the skills that are foundational to wellness within ourselves, to being healthy within ourselves every day. What's happening in this context is we are needing to bring those skills with greater courage and strength to the situation that we face. I'm curious too, I guess, and if we can look at some specific issues that people might be experiencing. Uh, I think one of the big ones with social distancing is that a lot of folks who at one point, you know, went to an office are now working at home. They're working at home, they're sleeping at home, relaxing at home. Um, And so maybe in talking about that specifically, what are some of the ways this might impact us? And then what are some areas that you think you can um, apply from emotional agility to to this this new normal? Yeah. So, and a very important point here is I think, you know, when I talk about having more space to have these experiences, of course, that doesn't mean we are always alone. We might be as I am. I've got two young children who are now home from school and I'm trying to do my work and I'm trying to look after them. And there's a lot that's going on, but we aren't spending hours commuting, you know, most, most of us. Um, we aren't spending hours distracting or avoiding outside of the house. So we're really starting to think about 
how am I using what I've got in this space, in this context right now? So, you know, one of the things that I think is really profoundly important is when we think about social distancing, I think a better way for us to all be thinking about this, originally the media had used this language of social distancing, but actually what we're thinking about here is physical distancing, physical distancing. We can still, if we are social creatures, which many of us are, we still need to be able to look for meaningful quality interactions that are really critically important to us right now. So we know that we can be lonely in a crowd. You know, we don't, we don't, we don't need, when we think about loneliness, loneliness is not just, oh, I'm by myself, therefore I'm lonely. You can be in a crowd of people and be lonely. So what is it that we think about when we think about how do you mitigate against or how do you ameliorate loneliness? Loneliness is actually um, a function of whether our our interactions are meaningful or not. So again, to this idea that emotions tell us a story behind our most difficult emotions are signposts to the things that we care about. If you're finding yourself feeling lonely, as an example, what is that loneliness the signpost of? The loneliness is often the signpost that you value presence and connectedness and that you don't have enough of it now. So that loneliness is telling you that there's something that you value that you need to be moving more in the direction of. And so you can start asking yourself, what are some small changes that I can make that are really important to me right now in this context of loneliness? Are there people that I'm reaching out to that I maybe haven't spoken to for a few years? Is there a way that I, you know, I have this really remarkable experience sometimes where I feel like even when we're speaking to someone, we're speaking beyond the person. Um, there's something beautiful that I do in one of my uh, exercises that I've actually done in some TED workshops before where I ask people just to silently look at another person. There's this beautiful phrase in South Africa, sawabona, it's a greeting. Sawabona means I see you and by seeing you, I bring you into being. And in the workshop, sometimes what I do is I'll stop people and I cue them and I say, Sawabona. And all I'm doing is I'm asking people to look beyond the eyes, to look into the soul and the love and the light and the hurt in the person that's in front of you. And I've been doing that with my children. You know, they don't necessarily love it. But instead of doing the quick hug when they're at the computer trying to do their learning each day, I'm starting to say to them, you know, let's just look at each other. Let's just connect with each other. Let's see the person behind the person. So I think that there are ways that we can, whether it's an online meeting with our colleagues or phoning someone that we care about, or even how we look at a person, there is meaning that brings us out of loneliness and meaning that brings us out of social isolation in ways that are really profound and beautiful. I just wanted to uh, nip in with a couple of questions from the wonderful yeah. crowd of people who, who are watching. Um, so, so I'm thinking, especially I think some people watching, you know, are literally in a situation now where they they have spent days alone and yeah. it's a fearful, it's a fearful time. Um, and so one question is, you know, what do you mean when you say reach inside of us to find courage? How do you actually do that? 
Well, firstly, what we know is the way fear operates. So when people are feeling fearful or when the situation is ambiguous, as it, as it is right now, usually what we try to do, and, and this is literally a cognitive um, reality for us, is that our mind tries to fill in the blanks. So we don't know the answers and we try to fill in the blanks. So we might catastrophize or we might, you know, develop huge amounts of anxiety or we go to our Twitter feed in search of the answers. And often what that does is it actually provokes the very opposite of what we need. What that provokes is it often provokes more anxiety, more fear and more, you know, we talk about viruses and we talk about physical contagion. Um, but we also know that people can experience very real levels of emotional contagion. Emotional contagion is when you in subtle ways pick up on the emotions of other people because uh, as human beings, again, we've evolved to pick up on these cues. And so I think, you know, when I'm saying reach inside of yourself, when we think about intentionality, intentionality is this idea that rather than being mindlessly stuck into our experience, which I have been too, you know, this is this is a common, common human experience. We get sucked into our news feeds. Instead, we're starting to ask ourselves questions of, is this helping me? And is there some alternative way that I can be engaging? So I've had lots of people contact me recently just saying things that, you know, I, I've just taken such joy in creating a little garden for myself. I have gotten a list of books that I really wanted to read and I haven't. I've reached out to a friend who I haven't spoken to for years and where we had some silly argument about something and we can't even remember what that argument was. But I now know that whether I'm right or wrong doesn't matter more than a more important question, which is, is my action serving me? Is it serving the person, the loved one, the human being that I most want to be? So if we can start reaching inside ourselves and saying, you know, what are ways that I can, if I'm lonely, how can I contribute? How can I connect? What are ways that I can come to my experience so that it's intentional and it's values connected? And also, if you're feeling lonely, and so many of us are, also be compassionate with that. This, this is tough. We often live our lives as if we're in a never-ending Iron Man or Iron Woman competition, you know, where we've got to have goals and be healthy and be fit and be there are all these things that we feel we've got to do every single day. We've got to be the best leaders. We've got to be, I think just, you know, breathing into the experience is really important. There are other practical things that we can do in relation to this experience as well. Um, often we use this language. We say, I am lonely. I am sad. I am angry. And it's a normal default way that we describe how we're feeling. But if we think about the language of that, what we're doing is we are saying, I am, all of me, 100% of me is this singular experience. I am sad. So what you're starting to do when you use that language is we do it unintentionally, but what we're starting to do is we're starting to define ourselves by our emotion. We are not our emotion. We own our emotions. They don't own and define us. So 
what we want to do is we want to show up to our emotions with compassion and curiosity, but we also don't want to get stuck in our emotions. So simple strategies that can be really helpful to people is instead of saying, I am sad, label your thoughts, your emotions, or your feelings for what they are. They are not fact. They are thoughts, they are emotions, they are feelings. So you might Mm. say something like, I'm noticing the feeling that I'm sad. I'm noticing the urge to shut down the conversation with my spouse, or I'm noticing the urge to keep going on my social media feed right now. I'm noticing the thought that things are never going to get any better. What you start doing when you, this is a a mindfulness technique, but what you're really doing is you are labeling your thoughts, your emotions, your feelings as thoughts, emotions, feelings. And when you do this, what you start doing is you create that space that I spoke about between stimulus and response. No longer are you defined. You are now able to see them for what they are. And then you can start saying, I'm noticing that I'm feeling sad. What is that telling me about what I care about? And how can I bring more of that thing into my life? And it's going to be different for different people. Uh, You mentioned there about contribution and about compassion. I I wonder, is it the case? Two things. First of all, how can people help? Like practically, how can they help others when we're all in this isolated world right now? Um, But secondly, can can that process itself actually help people that shifting from feeling the pain to, to the sort of the agency and the reaching out and try to do something. Can that, can that make a difference? Yes, it's such an important question. It's this thing of, I see you, but in seeing myself, I'm able to see others too, this profoundly important way of seeing others. And uh, yes, you know, finding ways that you can contribute. There are so many people in pain right now. There are people who are in their houses who haven't spoken to another soul for days. There are people who need help with essential groceries and services. There are shopkeepers who are struggling. And so within our community, instead of spending our time, you know, trying to get sucked or or trying to stop ourselves even from being in this vortex, um, which I think for so many of us is that experience, is really thinking about what are practical ways that we can do it. And what is, what's, what's so true for us as human beings is we often think that in order to make a contribution, we've got to do something huge. It's got to be grand. It's got to be massive scale. But, you know, if we think about the need to belong, every single one of us needs to belong. And we know that we can half one other person's pain just by being that person's person today. That might just be a phone call. But if we can reach beyond ourselves, that's healing for others and it's healing for for ourselves as well. And so this is often not about these big things. It's often about what I call tiny tweaks, small Mm. values-connected actions that we can take that are committed. And, And even, you know, being at home, being physically distant, there's, there's courage. There's courage in doing that. I mean, we're doing it because we know that it's the right thing, but there's also courage in looking inside of ourselves and, and, and owning that you're doing that not only because you have to, but because that is something that is profoundly 
important that you care about others. And I think actually this is also a conversation to be having with children right now. You know, I think, you know, often what happens with our kids is we say, well, these are the rules. You know, this is what we've got to do now. But what are we doing? We're really trying to help our children develop their own sense of values and character. And so we can start doing this by showing up to our children's emotions. How are you feeling mm. instead of trying to, you know, say everything's going to be okay, don't worry about it, and, and try to brush over it. Our children are feeling what they're feeling. If we can shut those feelings with compassion, but then also ask our children, um, you know, what are ways that you think you can bring yourself to your friends or to your connections or how are ways that you are living right now connected with who you want to be as a person? These are incredible times for us. We didn't ask for them, but we are developing our resilience and our character <laughs> and the character of those around us without a doubt. So your last comment about children and, and how you can really have conversations with them about what's going on. You know, a lot of them may be experiencing some of the same emotions that, that we're all experiencing, but maybe with a little more confusion because they have less life experience. And so how can we talk to children if, you're, if there are parents out there about what's going on out there and how they can deal with their emotion? The most important thing we know, you know, I spoke about instead of saying I am sad, you noticing that you're feeling sad. Another very, very important part of being effective with our emotions is being granular with our emotions. And what I mean when I say being granular is often we use very big labels to describe our emotions. You know, people might say I'm stressed, stressed, I'm stressed. That's the most common one that I hear. Um you know, in, in, in my work, in the work that I'm doing in organizations, very often people say I'm stressed. Um, but there's a world of difference between stress and disappointment or stress and overwhelm or stress and fear. And what we know psychologically is when we label our emotions in a more granular way, when we move beyond the I am stressed into what is this emotion really, then what it does is it helps us to, again, move into that space of ourselves. And it, it does something really powerful in our brains. It starts helping us to understand what is the cause of the emotion and what is the pathway forward. So we're now moving beyond this, oh, it all feels stress into this is overwhelm. I can do something with overwhelm. I can create pockets of control, okay? If my stress is lonely, I can look for opportunities to reach out. So emotion granularity is really important. When it comes to children, the same applies. We often, as parents with really, really good intentions, want to just jump in and say, you know, the child says, mommy, I'm worried. You know, don't worry, it'll be okay. And again, I take that lesson of my father, you know, it's normal to be scared. What we know for our children is simply showing up to them, simply seeing them and holding space for them to feel what they feel is probably the most important way that children can develop a sense of security in the context of chaos. So that's the showing up part. The second part is, again, we are wanting children to feel that their emotions don't own them. When we say to kids like, oh, don't worry, everything will be okay, or just be happy, 
what are we teaching? We're teaching that some emotions are good and some emotions are bad and that the bad ones should be done away with. And so when we do that very often, children don't get practice with feeling what a difficult emotion feels like and they don't then develop the, the, the strength and the capacity, the psychological resource that that builds. So when a child is feeling what they're feeling, that's what they're feeling. If we can show up to that with compassion, that in of itself is probably the most powerful thing. Then another thing that we can do is we can start helping that child to label their emotions. We know that children as young as two or three years old are able to start differentiating between angry versus sad. I feel rejected or I feel it's unfair. Okay, so, so children are starting to develop this language and when our children are going through difficulties, we can help them to do that. Like, is it that you feeling, you know, stressed here or is it that you're scared? Are you lonely? Are you, you know, what is it that's going on for you? So helping our children to step out of their emotions so that those emotions are data, but they're not directives. They're data, they're telling us what we need, but they're not calling the shots. And then we can start helping our children to say, so what is it that you need right now? You know, do you need us to organize a Facebook conversation with a friend? But at the end of the day, all of us, every single person listening, every single person who will be listening, every one of us is doing the best we can with who we are, with what we've got, and with the resources that we have available to us. The most important thing that we can do with ourselves, and it will then be role modeled to our children, is to be compassionate with yourself. And that moves us into the space, instead of of judgment, and not enough and never enough, into the space of being and um, resilience and grace and dignity. Some people are asking almost not so much about you know, fear and depression, but about just, just focus. Like people who've had their academic life, their year has been disrupted. Um, what can I do to find any focus and to pay attention to? So, yeah, I mean, life is right now conspiring, <laughs> conspiring against any kind of focus. And at the same time, you know, we've almost got all of us as a society, like a forced amount, a forced time of um needing to regalvanize ourselves. And so I think for, for every person, firstly, recognizing what are some of the things that you are doing that are unintentionally sucking, literally sucking the life out of your day. Um, it might be, it might be the constantly checking the numbers. Uh, it might be, you know, going down a rabbit hole of epidemiological studies. There are different ways that we are just having this conspiring against our attentional resources. And again, you know, trying to navigate what's going on with children and with, with elderly parents, there's just so much going on. So I think, you know, one of the most important things that we can do is as far as you can, try to establish pockets of control. You know, there's lots that's out of our control. We, we don't control almost all of this. What can we control? We control how we respond. We can control how we connect and we control how 
we are to the best of our ability able to segment our time off. So if for you that means that your control that day is simply making a list of what food is going to be on the table or whether that control is um, putting your cell phone in a drawer for an hour every day or whether the control is, you know, shutting something else off. We, we are family. We love music and we, we always dancing around the kitchen and, you know, we, we love and, you know, that's one way that we bring joy to our lives. But I've actually been finding that there's so much noise in general that for me, the control is actually the control of exerting some kind of silence in the environment wherever it's possible. I haven't left the house for two weeks. Um, and the first week was absolutely, you know, it was chaotic with all of the stuff going on. And I found for me being able to just think about, okay, if this lands up being some kind of forced sabbatical that I didn't ask for, but if that's what it is, what are the three or four things that I need to be doing every day that are going to create some kind of routine? And what are ways that I can think of other projects that I want to do? So we created some kind of routine for my children. And, and it's not perfect. None of this is perfect. But it is what it is. It's these pockets of control that give us back our sense of agency, and that's really critical. So, so these conversations are very high on the Maslow pyramid. How do we who have the privilege to have these conversations support those who are out working on the front lines who don't have the luxury of taking time for introspection? That's exactly right. Every single one of us has very, very different circumstances. And like, you know, I've been thinking so much about individuals, for instance, who might be in situations of, of domestic abuse or where children are feeling physically unsafe and where going to school was was literally what was saving that child. Um, and this this is where my heart goes to. You know, this is where our connecting with others, you know, there are things that we can do that can be helpful. There are crisis text lines that are currently looking for people who are available to be a helpful ear to individuals. There are ways that we can uh, support businesses. You know, is that is there a way that we can buy gift cards to? But I mean, these are these are very practical and micro suggestions. But I think that they they important because there is real suffering, and this is not just about you know, oh, how can I move myself into a higher plane of being um, and compassion and restoration? Because it's not. I mean, the reality for many, many, many people is that I don't have food in my house. And this mm. is why us coming together as community and being values connected and saying, how can we help? What are little big ways that we can help is, is fundamental. This, this right now is the marker of our ability as humanity to come together and to fight back against this pandemic. So putting the camera back, Susan, you, you as, a, as a psychologist look at this overall situation, you know, people, you, you can see things going in two, two ways because the world's yeah. conducting this massive psychological experiment we've never had done before. 
some people worry that we are going to drive each other crazy. We're going to, we're going to bring out so much fear and anger. There's already a blame game going on between nations, possibly between different communities. That, on some scenarios, that gets very dark. Um, on the other hand, there are thousands and thousands of just amazing stories of help and love and creativity and people. Like, which way is this going to go? Do you think, do you think overall we, we are, you know, we're, we're going to find a way of this persuading each other to be our better selves? When we experience what in psychological terms is called mortality salience, mortality salience is this idea that our death becomes it's moved from something that we can conveniently avoid to something that is much more at the periphery. Even if we aren't directly infected or directly experiencing something, it's much more salient to us. And we know that when human beings have this mortality salience, we tend to become much more us and them. Um, We tend to become more biased, more stereotyped. There are a lot of uh, predictable psychological responses when we experience this. Um, but we also know that human beings have, through time, had a well of wisdom and humanity. And, you know, what I would just say is I think that what so often happens is we try to solve the world's problems with our minds. And, of course, we've got the best minds out there working on it, and they should continue working on it. And I think this is a time where we, we actually need to move away from our minds into our hearts, into our breathing, our seeing, our compassion, our wisdom, our fortitude. And when I look at the research, when I look at the psychology of generosity and helpers and community, and you see that through history, that there is this experience of human beings coming together, I believe with all of me that we can but it comes through the place of being able to see ourselves and to see the other and to do so with compassion. You know, even the person who might be hoarding toilet paper, compassion doesn't mean that you agree that that person is doing, you know, the right or the wrong thing. It's it's about moving beyond right or wrong. And it's saying, you know, what is this person experiencing inside of themselves that might be driving a particular response that is this openness of mm. the beauty of who we can be as human beings. And I believe that we can and will do that. And that that is the sustainable way forward in what is a fragile and beautiful world right now. Mm. Wow. Well, Susan, thank you so much for that. And Whitney, thank you so much for the, the conversation there. And you guys online, uh, this, Thank it's just, you. It feels, it feels great to be engaged with you. So look, tomorrow I'm going to be talking with Bill Gates. Um, needs no interruption. You know, five years ago, he gave a talk warning about the coming pandemic. He, he if, if you watch that talk, Google Bill Gates, TED Talk, pandemic. Watch that if you can before tomorrow. It will make your blood run cold. I mean, he's so much of what, what the world is experiencing now was laid out there absolutely crystal clear. And um, and clearly not not enough was done. So it's going to be so fascinating to hear from him what happened. You know, why? I mean, he's a big, powerful man. Why didn't the world listen more? And more importantly, what on earth can we do now? How do we scramble to get our health systems 
operating more effectively? How do we think about the future? And then during the rest of the week, there's, there's a wonderful lineup as well. Um, and so check, check, um, if you check on TED.com, the full program is on there as to who's coming. Uh, we welcome suggestions for other speakers as well. Thanks everyone. Stay well, stay strong. We can do this. Bye for now. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash TED Talks. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash TED Talks. Odoo, modern management made simple.